This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. And you can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, oh and he has to. No. Hello and welcome to Series 7. It's Episode 7. It's Andy Townsend. Welcome to Quickly, Kevin. Will he score? I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And he's taken to Peter Schmeichel's fall from grace like John Lukic took to the back pass rule. It's Michael Marden. Hello. Can we can we stop the Schmeichel versions of those, please? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's become facts now. So on the subject of Peter Schmeichel, someone called Johnny Meeson has uh, just tweeted us to say... Uh, He's, tweet, he's linked us into a, a 90s football. Uh, there's a Twitter account called 90s Football, which is fantastic. And there's got a video there of Peter Schmeichel dealing with a pitch invader. And he kind of picks this guy up runs him over to the touchline and as he gets the touchline lugs him like full force like someone gets thrown out of a bar in a western at the advertising hoardings and uh, Johnny Meeson has replied to that tagged us in it and said um, if only the pitch invader had jumped over him (laughs) well Peter Schmeichel stuff is just is not going to end is it We've got an email, subject Peter Schmeichel from Clinton Smith. <laughs> We've got to start. Hello, Josh, Chris and Michael. For this previous discussion uh, about Peter Schmeichel's susceptibility to being logged, an interview in the latest edition of 442 magazine. This is Henrik Larsson, not that Henrik Larsson, speaking of their time together playing in the Denmark national team. I remember Peter then, as I know him now, Larsson tells 442, he was a workaholic. He really loved being a keeper and had the wildness in goal that everyone saw later on. He hated losing, even when we played games in training, and he hated it if we tried to chip him during shooting drills. Do you think he knew? (laughs) 
He knew that that was his weakness, Michael. Yeah, it's an Achilles heel. He tried to plug the gap with intimidation. It's amazing that, like, even a player that's played with him in Denmark is asked, what is Peter Schmeichel like? And within three sentences, he's he's brought up <laughs> his susceptibility to being lobbed. Do you know what? We had Neville Southall last week. Didn't ask him a single question about famous lobs he's experienced. <laughs> there were none. <laughs> Should have asked him about Peter Schmeichel getting locked. It's a shame, isn't it? Because Peter Schmeichel would be such a great guest for this. But now, he, I'd put him on the can't book along next to Steve Bruce. <laughs> yeah. Are we slowly going through that 90s United team? Accidentally <laughs> pissing them all off. Um, do you want some correspondence? Let's do it. Yeah. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Postbag. You've got mail. Now, we were talking uh, last week about uh, the Chelsea players being overheard saying that they couldn't throw it far enough. This really struck a chord with me. I've never really thought about this, but this email is called Mario Melchiot's Long Throw. Hi, all. Your talk. This is from George Keeney. Hi, all. Your talk of long throws in the previous episode has awoken in me something that is common parlance in my household. The phrase being, that's about as useful as Mario Melchiot's Long Throw. <laughs> Signing in 1999, so still fitting with your brief. Mario Melchiot would have my dad and I in stitches when Chelsea were on television by seemingly thinking he had a long throw, even though he didn't. This would involve him doing all of the long throw cliches, (laughs) such as waving his arms to get people in the box, polishing the ball under his shirt, and doing a long run-up before releasing the mitre Ultimax. He would then routinely throw it onto the first defender's head. <laughs> <laughs> Whether this really happened every week or we just got carried away, Mario Melchior has always had a special place in our hearts. The long throw is the least exciting weapon. Beyond the Rory Delap one um, and the um, Dave Challoner, was it the guy that used to play for Tranmere, who had a really long throw? I'd say the long throw is the most useless thing in football. But th- when it's just not- kind of plonked in at a really slow like really slow <laughs> loop into the box it's so unthreatening <laughs> well actually i'd say the opposite is true for me when you if you're defending and you see like the, the opposition gets the throw in and you see all the attackers run into the box and you see your defenders visibly get scared that for me is so much worse than like a, a free kick in a, in a challenging position or, yeah because you're like oh here we go what what is this it feels special it feels a new kind of threatening. That's the thing about Rory Delap as well. He wouldn't just like lob him in. They were fizzed in. Yeah, they were a different beast. At a lower league level, those long throws are looping to twice the height of a goal. I think the long throw is totally the most overrated thing in football. I've always wondered, like, when do you realise you're good at long throws? How do you get there? How do you figure that out? Yeah. Did Rory Lapp just take a throw in one day and went, wow, I've just thrown it <laughs> almost into the goal? But do you remember? The, do you remember? I don't know if you do remember Dave Challoner, who played for Tranmere. He had a long throw that was so long. He was, I, this is probably the wrong analogy because I don't think either of you are that into cricket, but John T. Rhodes used to play for South Africa and he wasn't actually that good at batting. He was probably had an average of about 30, but he was such a good fielder, he'd get in the team. And Dave Challoner, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Tramir fans, was mainly, he wasn't probably good enough to be in the team except for his long throw. Like a kind of special player in uh, in NFL. Me and my friends used to have conversations about, like, 
what would you do if you had to sort of change the game of football, but in a way that's kind of a kind of a radical shakeup? And one of the things I always I was interested in was the NFL special teams, where you would be allowed to bring on a player just for free kicks, just for throw-ins, and it wouldn't count as a substitution throw-in. And even like goal kick specialists, corner takers. <laughs> Yeah. Imagine if you brought in like a sort of an NFL punter just because every time you had a goal kick, it was like a shot on goal. Because you can't be offside from it. You just put all of your players in the opposition's goal area. Can you not be offside from a goal kick? No, you, you put, put them all in the opposing area. <laughs> just imagine that. It's just <laughs> hoofing it up. Get it in the mixer. Yeah. Who was it who used to shoot from the halfway line at every, every centre? It was a City player, wasn't it? Didn't kick, there was a period when King Clancy at kickoff. I'm sure this it was King Clancy, maybe. Well, no, I thought he tried. He'd always try and run it through, as if to have a go. <laughs> and in a way, it's not a bad idea because no one ever scores from kickoff anyway. But I suppose you are getting off on the wrong foot. Right. Without further ado, it's the nineties o'clock news. Sean Dyche and Ian Wone go on holiday. <laughs> David Boost receives hundreds of boosts in Boost for Cadbury's Boost-based marketing. <laughs> Our top story this evening, listeners, athletic article published a couple of weeks ago uh, detailing a holiday that Sean Dyche and Ian Wone took to Las Vegas, Nevada. The article is there to establish their friendship, but specifically, they do take holidays together. Oh, okay. So recently, they went to Las Vegas, possibly last year. During the holiday, they decided together to drive six hours to see the Grand Canyon. Daesh, this is a direct quote from the article. Can I just ask, were their, were their wives invited? It, the article suggests they weren't. <laughs> Lads holiday, isn't it? These two work together. Imagine... Chris, if you said to to your good wife that you were going on holiday with, with Sean Dyche, she'd say, <laughs> she'd say who? <laughs> um, <laughs> if you said I'm going on holiday to America with the person I work with, I think that would be absolutely bananas, wouldn't it? Josh, what would what would Rose most likely sign off on you to go to go away? Uh, Alex Brooker for for a week or Sean Dyche? What would you most be able to get away? I think whether she'd be aware of Sean Dyche. I think if he came into the house out of context, she wouldn't recognise him. But I think if she was watching Match of the Day, she might go, oh, that's that guy. Well, I think if I was going to go on holiday with Sean Dyche, I would bare minimum think I should introduce him to Rose before the holiday. <laughs> like, I think it would be weirder still if she'd never met him. At least of all, is- if I'd never met him as well. <laughs> This is a great call out to our listeners. Where would you go on holiday with Sean Dyche? Hello at quicklykevin.com. I wouldn't want to go far. Well, look, specifically, the next line in this article from The Athletic is, I mean, it raises so many questions about Sean Dyche. Ian wanted to Sean Dyche decide to go see the Grand Canyon. And Sean Dyche, direct quote, was unable to get car insurance, so Wone did all the driving during the 12-hour round trip. Why can't Dyche get car insurance? Is that points from his license? But again, if you're going to go on holiday with Sean Dyche, don't make it a driving holiday because you will be forced to do most of the work. Do you think he's got one of those jobs? Like, I find it very difficult to get car insurance on renting a car and stuff because um, 
comedian is a bad job to have for car insurance. It's one of those ones where it's like the, the worst level. I wonder whether football manager, because one of the reasons comedians bad is because you drive so many miles, so you're more likely to have an accident. Do you think football manager, where you're going, you're going, doing a lot of night driving, scouting, puts you in the highest level of car insurance problems? I mean, this is probably the most boring thing we've ever discussed in the show. <laughs> Do you know the the fastest method of, of transport if you're a football manager? You sign Roy Delap and have him throw you to wherever you want to go. <laughs> so this is now, this is so, Ian Wone, Sean Dice, they've gone to Vegas, they're looking at the Grand Canyon. Ian Wone says, we got to this incredible place. Sean Dice looked over the rim for two minutes and said, all right, I've seen it, let's go. Bear in mind, they've been driving <laughs> six hours to get to the Grand Canyon. Sean says to him, you've got to be kidding me. Sean Dice looked back and said, I've seen it. What else have I got to see? I'm just looking at this big hole. So again, <laughs> if you're going to send in ideas to go away on holiday with Sean Dice, don't pick sightseeing or places you're going to do a lot of driving. Yeah, driving holidays are not his scene. I wonder if there's a direct correlation between the style of play a manager adopts and their take on sort of wonders of the world, oh, tourist wow. wonders of the world. Yeah, I'd love to go and see the pyramids with Marcelo Bielsa. <laughs> I think he might be quite boring about it, actually. But looking at the Sphinx, he'd bring out his fucking bucket and sit down. <laughs> it's midday. What are you doing? I'm burning up here. I'd love to do, you know, uh, I'm sure we've talked about it, Sir Alex Ferguson's obsessed with uh, the JFK assassination. Yeah. To, do, to go to Dallas with him, oh, you, you do yeah. jazz bars in the evening, be walking around the book repository in the yeah. day. That'd be a great trip. I, I, I would enjoy yeah. that. You go for a nice red wine and the um, the waiter would try and call time and he'd just be tapping his watch. Going, Come on, mate. Right? <laughs> more minutes. If I had to go with a 90s manager on holiday, I wouldn't mind going on like a lad's holiday with John Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> you would have last five minutes. I think I'd enjoy it. Chris, I think you've once again missed the lead. The main story is surely that David Booth's got a load of boosts. What's the uh, details? Another update. So Cadbury's boosts have sent lots of boosts to David Boost, who has uh, put him on his Twitter. He's got a big da- boost, boost, David Boost bar. And uh, hopefully we're going to get David Boost on next series. He's got such a fascinating story, obviously, far beyond um, the way his career ended. He has a really rich story. So hopefully if he survives all these boosts, he's no doubt going to get through over the Christmas period. We'll chat to David Boost in the new year. <laughs> Uh, now, if you want to get in touch with us with 90s o'clock news or anything non-chocolate bar related, but ideally long throw related, this is how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Now, uh, before Andy Townsend, I did want to talk about the Republic of Ireland, if that's okay with you two. Yes, please. I'm going to play you some songs, and I want you to tell me who the recording artist is. You will, you will recognise this song. This isn't by the original band. Don't shout out. No reason for coming to me when the rain is running down. There's no have a have a listen to the voice. I, I think I know who it is. I, and this has triggered a memory right at the back of my head. Okay, well. 
tell me while we listen I, to I it. I can get the name of the song, the original artist, and the person singing that. I'm not giving you anything for the name of the song. <laughs> 7475 by the Connells, sung by Paul McGrath. Correct. <laughs> well, he did an album, didn't he? He did an album. Called... From the recesses of my mind, this I've got to have this I knowledge. Think, I think he's got a good voice. Yeah, but why have we never talked about this before? What do you think, Michael? Well, I... I... <laughs> You just ruined one of my rounds on the end of the series quiz. <laughs> <laughs> Do we all know that? That's so weird. So this came in from Chris Franks, who's 32 and two months. Um, team Watford, favourite 90s players, Craig Grammage, Tommy Mooney, Gary Porter. If you all want to end your emails like that, ideally. Uh, he hasn't written an email. He's just put in the Spotify link with the title, Paul McGrath, you're welcome. <laughs> Do you want to hear his cover of Handle With Care by the Travelling Wilburys? Putting a, he's putting an American twang on that. He recorded it between the group stage and the second round <laughs> of the USA World Cup. Picked <laughs> up a touch of the McLarens. Yeah. I got sent this and I listened to his version of 7475 by the Connells about four or five times because I thought it was so good. Really? Is it on Spotify? Yeah, the album's on Spotify. It's called Handle with Care by Paul McGrath. I'm gonna lie. How, how, many, how many listens does it tell you? Is it one of those like under 1,000? Pre or stuff? post me getting the email. What's it on now and what will it be on once this episode is His released? His top song is 7475, which has got 13,500. Okay. Um, but are you aware of this song? What the hell am I listening to? You're listening to the single Did You Ever by Linda Martin and Mick McCarthy. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how I imagined Mick McCarthy would sound. I think it's exactly how I imagined he'd sound musically. (laughs) All of this music chat is making me want to revisit the, uh, the failed attempt last year to get us in the UK Top 40 at Christmas. No. Oh, well... You know, Michael, I, I would say I, I, I would admire you for trying, but I'm not I'm not gonna lie to you. We were just talking about before we started that we've all got too much on. The thought of <laughs> <laughs> Um So the reason I play those two is we now come to an uh, interview with Andy Townsend. Now Andy Townsend, um we've always we've really wanted to get him on for ages because A, he's one of the most articulate pundits in football, also uh he was involved in really the greatest 90s story, which is the Republic of Ireland team going to the 1990 World Cup and the 1994 World Cup. He's executive producer on a brilliant new film called Finding Jack Charlton, which I would implore you all to watch. Uh, We talked to Andy about his long career, uh, his glorious career with the Republic of Ireland, with a few other things thrown in. Also, there is a director's cut of this episode on the Patreon, which contains us asking him about the Aston Villa drinks video. So uh, if you want that, uh, I'll be honest with you, it really was the hard-hitting question that was made for the director's cut. <laughs> if you want that, it's patreon.com slash quicklykevin. However, here is Andy Townsend. Townsend does score! Great free kick! Well, you don't see many new free kicks, do you? But that's an absolute peach. And what a finish. Every right to be pleased, the manager. 
Our guest this week is an icon of 90s football, one of the first names on the team sheet during spells for Chelsea, Villa and Middlesbrough. He's perhaps most adored across the Irish Sea, at least, for his time with the boys in green under the stewardship of Jack Charlton. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Andy Townsend. How are you doing, Andy? I'm very good, guys. I'm very good. How are you? We're great, yeah. Well, I, I can't speak for Chris. But I, I'm, I'm very good. I, I feel emotionally drained because Andy, you've you've just executive produced a, a documentary called Finding Jack Charlton. I watched yeah. it last night. It is one of the most incredible emotional documentaries I've ever seen. How yeah. how did you feel making it? Well, it was um, it was about two years ago. Gabriel Clark. I I know Gabriel and Pete Thomas very well from my ITV days when I was working at ITV. Those boys were. Uh, we're, we're always heavily involved uh, at, at ITV. And so they've, they, I know they've already made some very interesting stuff. The, the, the Bobby Robson story, More Than a Manager, was a, was a great film. They did the Steve McQueen doc as well. And, they've, and, and I know Gabriel, and I know what he's like. When he wants to do something, he gets his head completely in there, you know, and, he's, uh, and he only does things properly. So, um, so when he said, look, we'd like to do this story on Jack, and it's, it's going to be, um, of course, about his, about everything, about about 66, about his relationship with his, with his brother, but, but kind of all wrapped around the journey that he, that he took Ireland on. So uh, it sounded very exciting. And uh, so, yeah, that was a while ago now when we first spoke about it. And there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of filming and a lot of planning and a lot of uh, thought has gone into it, mostly by those guys, I've got to say. I'm not, <laughs> take, I, I take the credit, credit Andy, take the credit. No, Josh, I well, can't, mate. I, I, can't. I was going to ask you what your follow-up's going to be. You know, you, you could be at an Oscars here, Andy. Yeah, I wish I could. I mean, I can imagine if they did win any awards and I went up there and did the acceptance speech, it would be the, the most outrageous bit of, uh, <laughs> bit of skullduggery that you've ever seen in your life. Very much John Terry at the Champions League final style. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so no, but, but, but look, those guys have put it together. I think they put it together beautifully as well. Mm, it's a, totally it's a, not only is it a great story, but it's been... The way they constructed it, I think, is very smart and very, very nice. So, so look, I'm thrilled with it, and I hope everybody likes it. I really do. It's it's brilliant, and obviously, you very close to Jack. You know, mm. he's kind of the manager throughout your international career, or most of your international career. Mm. Uh, such an inspiring man. There's a great bit at the end where they they they've got all these notes that Jack's written, and yeah. uh, you read out one that says, "Be a dictator." But a nice yeah. one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does that oh. sum up his management style, do you think? Well, it kind of, in, in a way it does because he, um, I mean, there was a lot of, you, you could always relate to Jack. There was a lot of, of, of um, he had such a great personality that he could relate with, with the younger guys in a squad, the older guys. He was, I think you see in the film, he's very much uh, a people person. But if you step over the line, if you just go, in one direction where you don't want to go, then instantly he would pull you up on that. And he wouldn't hold back if it was in front of, it could be in front of just the players. It could be in front of a crowd of people. If he wanted to, to, uh, to give you a dressing down, he, he would do that. And he, and he was, and when he did it as ever, it wasn't perfect. He always, he always meant it, you know? So, uh, were you on the end of those ever, Andy? I'd, I'd had a few, I had a few, um, not too many to be honest, but I had a few, and I had a, I remember one night playing against against Wales. We were down in, I think it was at Swansea. We played a friendly, and we had a corner. And I was sort of on the edge of the box for, a, you know, in case anything gets headed out, and I can, 
hopefully have a shot or just try and keep the possession or whatever. And the ball come, the ball got whipped in. Neville Southall caught it, and he immediately threw it out to the fullback. Now, if I'd have gone running straight out to the fullback, I'd have never got there before he'd have knocked it over my head and just put me out of the game. So I'm kind of jogging back towards the halfway line. And as I'm jogging back, I can see Jack's literally, his face is like purple. He's, he's got hold of the cap. He's, he's, he's slung the cap. He's stand, jumping up and down on his cap. He's going ballistic. Andy, get up. And anyway, so I was shouting back at him and I sort of give him a bit of a mouthful back. At half time, he let me have it with both barrels. And basically the message was, and that, this is what it was with Jack. It was kind of all or nothing. It was, I said, Jack, if I go running out there, he's just going to knock it over my head and I'm out of the game. What's the point of me? I just want to slow him down, just gradually back off. No, you don't do that. Because if you don't go, then the next one doesn't go. And then somebody else doesn't go. And then we're nothing. So it's kind of like that, that sort of mentality of like, even if you go there, someone else will react behind you. Then someone else will react behind him. Then all of a sudden we're doing what we do, which is pressing and pushing and squeezing your opponent as opposed to standing and watching them. That's sort of what he was like, you know. One of the things in the documentary is this kind of feeling that while some people didn't like the style of the Ireland team, he really kind of was one of the first people who was pressing teams like they are now. Absolutely. With with such intensity, uh, Josh, definitely. I mean, we, again, it was relentless, so much so that sometimes we felt as a group, sometimes we had to let the opponent breathe a little bit to get them out and let them come up the field a bit. So as then you've got some space to, to maybe exploit behind them a little bit, you know, but no, again, you know, he was absolutely adamant. It's like from the first whistle, it always used to make me laugh with things like, uh, it always used to say, if any of you are knackered, I'll make a change. I'll make a change, but go for them. And I want you to squeeze them. I want you to get in there. And I want you to, and I always used to think to myself, well, what happens if all of us are knackered, Jack? You know, <laughs> you know, what happens? What happens? We caught an hour ago. If if actually we've all we've all got our hand up in here, going, I've gone. You know, and uh, but he always used to say that. If any of you are tired, I'll, I'll make a change. You know, but there are eleven of us out there, unfortunately. But uh, and the thing was, we had we had some very good players in that squad. We had some players, the Houghtons, the Whelans, the Kevin Sheedies, the. McGrath, Aldridge, O'Leary. I mean, we had outstanding players who were all playing good football at their clubs. Yeah. So, of course, to, to turn up and maybe go quite direct wasn't everybody's cup of tea. But yeah, it definitely. Certainly, it certainly worked. You know, it did. I heard a story, but I, did, I kind of... You know when you hear half a story, like, I don't understand, yeah. about him having a tenor on a string? Well, I gave him that. I oh, did you? <laughs> so, yeah. I was always messing about and, and always, you know, stupid practical jokes or whatever. So if we were at an airport, you know, just to, just to pass a bit of time at an airport or something, you know, I used to have this tenor on a bit of string, you know, and then <laughs> so, and I used to leave it out in the middle of the, uh, in, in, in the middle of the terminal, you know, so as, and as people, all, as you do, you're walking into an airport and you're all looking up for your flight and you're looking where to go. And then, one of the lads will tap someone on the shoulder and say, I think you've just dropped some money there, you know. And then, of course, as soon as they bend over and pick it up, I hit this little button in my pocket and it comes flying back about 300 <laughs> miles an hour straight in my pocket. So, of course, I gave it to Jack one day and I said to him, uh, I said, you've got to have a go at this. got to have a go. And I, and I showed him and he and immediately started giggling and started laughing, which is what he was like. And the next thing, we, 
I've got my international manager, you know, t- taking the mickey out of people at Heathrow Airport with a tenner, you know. So, um, but uh, listen, you know, that's he was great fun. He was a great laugh. He was he had an he had an outstanding personality, as you can see in the film. Yeah. But he did love a, a, a joke, you know. He always had time for the for the guys to let their hair down and have a laugh. Would you say he was one of the lads? Like, would he come join you in the pub or...? He wasn't boss. He was never boss. He was yeah. never gaffer. He was Jack. No one, I don't know, I ever heard anybody call him boss. Maybe apart from Charlie, our kit man, or Mick, our physio, but everybody else, he was Jack. You know, we play cards at the back of the bus. And, uh, of course, whenever he, whenever he lost, he threatened to not bring certain players ever again if they took a few quid <laughs> off of him, you know. You know, you're not coming next month. Next month. I ain't picking you. <laughs> Unless you give me that money back, oh, you ain't coming, you know. So, uh, but he was, he was, he was very, very funny, very funny. And, 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 but there was a, there was such a distinction with him. You knew when it was time to work mm. and then you, you absolutely knew when, when, when it was time for a, for a laugh and a beer and, and whatever, you know. So, uh, and there, but yeah, he had a great distinction there. It was quite obvious. I've been a wild What's football about? You're at Wembley Stadium, and a ball is crossed from the right wing, and you go, boom, boom. That's his medal. People say to me, was that the most memorable day of your life? Joys and management are totally different to Joys as a player. It's not the same, Jack. It's dementia. I couldn't remember a lot of the memories. And it's a shame because he's had some good memories. Jack, perfect goal! My dad made notes. I'm a batterer, a fowler. (laughs) What are you clapping for? On players, family and tactics. We kept them all. Ireland was engulfed in war and conflict. Nobody would have given you odds that you'd have an Englishman manage the team. Our way of playing is completely new. If you didn't like it, tough luck. My brother Jack was an uncompromising character. Jack said, if you don't get off the bus today, you'll never play for this country again. This is a time when it gives you the opportunity now, not only to go. Come on. You couldn't feel the spirit of the camp. What did it mean to lead Ireland to the World Cup finals? You're talking about financially. <laughs> it was an extraordinary adventure. I think a lot of you don't in Ireland. No idea. Bobby did what Bobby wants to do. I love them. Now hit me, come on! Rub it! Never assume they know and understand. We took that flag back and flew it with pride. Jack Charlton did that. He's done more in his lifetime than people would do in ten lifetimes. Be a dictator, but be a nice one.
There's, there's so, many, so much good footage in the documentary of him and Bobby, and especially at Italia 19, Bobby saying mm. he's really proud of Jack. And it comes through the documentary, they had a really complicated relationship. What, what do you make of it? We never saw Bobby, obviously, around, around the Irish camp that much, occasionally, like you say, in 90. Um, and I think it was pretty well documented, even at that time. You know, we used to take the mickey out of Jack a little bit. You know, you've only fallen out, Jack, because Bobby's got more money than you. And he's going, no, he hasn't. <laughs> He used to go, no, he hasn't, no, he hasn't. You know, he used to he jumps, he'd be straight all over you on that one. But, uh, but no, that clearly, like millions of other families out there, you know, the, the, mm. every now and again, it goes a bit wobbly. And again, and I think the one thing that I think Gabriel tried to impress upon everyone in the film is, is that, yes, they had their issues, but don't doubt the love and respect that they had for each other. But they were... Yeah. They were different people as well. They were very, you know, very different. I've only ever met Bobby a couple of times and he's complete contrast to, to Jack's sort of personality, really. Well, do you ever talk about Bobby, like in a kind of... Because he obviously he talks about how he's the best player he ever played with and yeah. stuff like that. Would he do, talk about him on the training pitch or any of that? Yes, he would. He, 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 spoke about, he spoke about Bobby a few times, certainly to me, about how good he was. You know, around 90, when, when people used to talk about Gaza... Jack would, he would say something like, you can't do what our kid does. Can't do what our kid did. You know, oh, wow. because Bobby was so two-footed and was such a skillful player as well as, and such a scorer of great goals and important goals. So, um, but he was always, always very, very quick to, to throw that one in. Whenever you mentioned about a player, he'd say, can't do what our kid does. Oh, that's so nice, isn't it? It's such, it's yeah. such a kind of fascinating relationship. And I, th- I think in a way it does them credit that they are honest about its failings. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of yeah. families wouldn't acknowledge it in the way they do, I think. I think that's really nice. It's, that's, that's very true. Normally you, you wouldn't kind of be quite so... But again, I think they're, they're both... As, as, as Jack's boy John says in the film, they're both kind of stubborn men, really. Mm. And, uh, you know, they've, they've had a tough upbringing. And Jack's world was very black and white it was you know you're either in his camp or you weren't in his camp and he, he either lied to us a player or he didn't kind of very little in terms of gray areas with jack yeah? mm. and i think that even with his own brother it was one of those where he shrugged his shoulders and oh well you know that's that's the way it is and, and move on sort of thing but uh but when it comes to respect and i think obviously a deep love of course of course that was there now let's talk about a player Jack did love, Andy Townsend. Now, well, good this me. <laughs> you made your debut in 1988. You were born in England, though. Correct. Um, I'm, I'm sure this isn't news to you. So pre-internet, how did this call? <laughs> how did the call-up work? And like, how, did you know about your Irish heritage? How did it all come about? Yeah, I mean, I'd, obviously, I, I, I'd known about uh, through my dad, obviously, mm. and, and uh, my Irish heritage. I had known about it, and for about a year, I'd only really, I'd only really established myself as a, as a player, really, uh, 18 months before that, a couple of years before that, because I was a non-league player. I was officially the sort of player that, that was probably going to be one of those ones which there's loads of out there in non-league where everyone says, do you know what, he, he, he could have made it, he could have done it, he could have done it. Because I had trials at Chelsea as a kid, no good. I, I went up to Sheffield Wednesday one day, and Howard Wilkinson and his lot run me into the ground almost for about four days. And I jumped in my car in the middle of the night and cleared off. You know, I was kind of one of those sort of lads that, uh, my dad was a professional footballer and he, he was in that era when there was no money and there was nothing much in it. So 
I don't think I was absolutely destined to be a footballer. I, don't, I genuinely yeah. don't feel that at all. I, Didn't you have a normal job as well? You, you were a computer operator for Greenwich Council. What? what, what? Correct. I was a computer operator for, and a very, a very ordinary computer <laughs> operator, I might add. Well, you, figured, you figured out Zoom this morning, so you still got it. Well, exactly right, exactly right. But my goodness, yeah. So, and in fact, when I first became a footballer, Laurie McMenemy, who was Southampton's boss, I don't know how he got it, but he rung me on the, on the phone at work. There I am sort of, you know, uh, looking vaguely interested in all this technology around me. And all of a sudden the phone rings and it's Laurie McMenemy. And I'm sort of, I thought it does sound like, hello. Yeah. I'd like to meet you. Would you like to, would you like to play for Southampton? You know, so uh, we were a very good team yeah. at that time in the, in the old first division, the top flight. So next thing I was on a train down there and, amazing contract of 200 pounds per week was put in front of me can't say no to uh, that and i honestly josh do you know what i was earning 130 quid a week playing part-time football oh, really? so so let me tell you i was worse off much worse <laughs> off in fact in fact my mum she said to me don't you go and do anything bloody stupid and sign for anything daft don't you go and make sure you come home and talk about it for so of course i'm down there with laurie McMenemy, and he's slid this across the table and it's Take it or leave it now. Oh, you know, it worked out. It worked out. Kind of got there in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but there you go. So, so no, so I was a computer operator and, uh, and, and, I, and again, as I say, I thought I was always kind of destined to be that one at that time that maybe just would never quite get the opportunity, you know, but there you go. So a few years later, you're called up by, so did they make the call or did you? No. So anyway, so basically the Irish story was that, so I'd now gone to, I'd left Southampton and gone to Norwich and Norwich was a, was a collection of all of us lads that had kind of, our careers were sort of on the way, but not quite. Mm. They were all sort of going in the right direction, but none of us had really kind of cracked it. And then, so we all got together and we had a very smart little team and Cass has, has been a good friend of mine, Tony Cascarino for, for years. We played junior football together from the age of about 10 and 11. Mm. And he obviously was aware of, of my heritage and he, and he said, look, I've spoke to Jack and he wants to speak to you and da 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 da. And then our, we, Norwich, fun enough, we played Millwall in a televised game back in, I think it was about 1989. And it was a good game. We won 3 2. And Jack was there. And after the game, he said, Look, you know, I'd like you to, uh, I'd like you to do it. And I didn't, didn't hesitate. You didn't think oh, I could wow. play for, I mean, I, there's a good chance you'd got an England cap, I reckon, Andy. Well, I mean, to, to be fair, Josh, I, at that time, um, I did, funny enough, I had a letter from Laurie Mack when he was Graham Taylor's assistant. Mm. And Laurie said, look, you should, have, you should have hung on. You should have waited. You should have waited and you would have definitely got England caps, definitely. And I, look, without blowing my own trumpet, you know, I firmly believe I would have, I would have got them had I mm. wanted to do that. But I've got to be honest, I'm being totally honest here, is that, uh, again, uh, I've, ne- I've never really, from the second I committed... I genuinely never really give that a thought. I never no. give it a thought. That was for others to start to start assuming and starting to say, you know. So well, um, you got but, to play uh, in USA '94. You wouldn't have got yeah. that if you were English. <laughs> well, that's that's very true. That's very very true. Very true. But um, yeah, so it was. It happened that quickly, really. It, just like that. There was no big. You know, Jack wasn't coming around my house and trying to woo me over a <laughs> over a over a dinner. Do you know what I mean? Far from it. He just said, "Look, 
if you want to come and play for us, I'd like you to come in the squad. Yeah. And, and that was it really, you know, and I said, yeah, I do. And, and then you get selected for Italian 90. And one thing that really comes through in the documentary is just the team spirit there. You've got Paul, yeah. Mark, David O'Leary, Steve Stoughton, Ray Houghton, Kevin, mm. Ronnie Whelan, John Aldridge, Niall Quinn. These are great players and you can tell they've got great, great personality. What was it like to be part yeah. of that squad? It was, it, I mean, we were, we were like the Beatles in Ireland at that <laughs> Honestly, I, I kid you not. I kid you not. You heard we of were, you too? <laughs> well, exactly. The, the people out there, as Larry Mullen says in the film, you know, I've been very fortunate to, to know Larry for a number of years. And as he says in the film, you know, everybody was kind of waiting for something to happen. Ireland needed something to happen at that time. And, you know, the football team was one of the, one of the few bits of good news out there and uh, so so everybody loved that that era it was very very special times every time we played we were packed to the rafters couldn't get a, a ticket for the love of money um on the road we had irish fans swarming from all four corners of the globe to go and watch us play so it was uh, it was very very special and and such a privilege just to to be part of it i still speak to the guys and i know it's sort of you know old football talk Every now and again, when you start throwing out things, do you remember this? Do you remember that? Particularly recently, since Jack's sad passing and, and, and the making of the film, you know, there's been a lot of that going on. But, but genuinely, I, I have such a, a warm feeling when I speak about those times. They were quite incredible, really. Yeah, it is. It really comes across in the film. It feels like era-defining. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. Italia '90 is kind of such an iconic event, both sides of the Irish Sea, really. And it starts yeah. with Ireland versus England. And yeah. is that the worst fixture or the best fixture? I think it was, it, there, was a, there was a certain irony when, that, when we came out of the hat, Josh, I can remember the draw. It, it kind of felt like, again, destined to, to happen. I don't know yeah. why, but it, everyone was talking about it. And sure enough, when it happened, it did. Um, and, and I think the distinction, and I'm, listen, this might be a bit unfair, to some of the England boys, they might see it very differently. But we never had that. Even the press used to come out and get drunk with us a lot. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you, know, you know, that's how. You know, that's what I mean by yeah. it was all such such an amazing time. You know, when I think back, you know, we were carrying journalists home back to the hotel. You know, <laughs> sort of, you know throwing them on their beds, sort of thing. Um, and uh, and of course, not a word of it was ever mentioned. You know, so whereas. England had always felt to me, mm. and even to this day, great honour for the English players and a great privilege, but hard work as well. A bit hard work because of the, the scrutiny, because yeah. of the, the criticism, because of the expectation maybe. And I always felt that that was the case even then back in 1990 where, and they had some excellent players and Tom Robson and Gazza and Butcher and, and, and Chrissy Waddle, all these guys were amazing players, brilliant, brilliant players. Mm. But you always knew they, they were always playing and living in fear a little bit, the English team, of failure and what that would mean to them individually when they got home. We never had any of that. Yeah. We were, you, could, you could strip all of that away from all of us. Because we were literally playing for fun. You know, if we lost every game 5-0, there would still be a million people waiting for us in Dublin when we got back. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, so when we got England, it was... There was something kind of ironic about that, that it was almost meant to be. And, uh, you know, we managed to get a decent result. One by Butcher. Now here's Sheedy. Sheedy's won it back and Sheedy shoots. And Kevin Sheedy, who's enjoying his best period in an Irish shirt, has right out of nothing come. 
Fraser. I'd say one of the most like tense part of the documentaries is after you qualify from the group with three draws, you play Romania on penalties, and you took that third penalty. Is that the most nerve-wracking moment of your career? Would you say? Um, that's a good question, Chris. I, I, do you know what? It was so hot in Genoa that day. It was like 110 degrees in the stadium. So you've played for 90 minutes, and as usual, I've been running around after Georgie Hadji for like 120 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> trying to kick him and failing miserably, you know. Um, so uh, we're all absolutely shattered, quite frankly, when you're sitting down in the centre circle. So I don't actually remember feeling that nervous waiting. Clearly, I must have been. The worst thing about a penalty shootout is always the walk from the centre circle yeah. to the penalty spot. For some reason, you know, why can't we just all congregate around the edge of the box? <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, when it's, when it's your turn, you can just sort of get the ball and just go and take it. Whereas, you know, you have to, it's almost like you can hear the drum roll in the background. Yeah. You know what I mean? well, one thing I noticed as well, the Romania goalkeeper is like handing the ball to all the Irish players who are taking Correct. the penalty. He goes Eyeball right up to them and eyeballs them. You know, oh, eyeballs man. It, yeah. And he was a big guy. He was actually, I can't remember his name, big, big goalkeeper. Right? But crouched down very low at the point when he was just about to take it, you know. And of course, I always, always, I'd taken quite a few penalties in my career at that point for both Southampton and Norwich. And uh, I always placed them, always placed them. And of course, in the centre circle, Jack's walking around, just get your head down and thump it. Get your head down and just put <laughs> it down the middle. You know, and it's like, you know, the golden rule, Josh, is like, you don't, you don't change your mind, you know, <laughs> on your penalty, you know. Whatever you do, you've got to stick to it. So, uh, and there we are. We're all, and I know that, that Ray Allen would place his, and, I, and I'm, you know, there's no way Dave O'Leary is going to walk up if he has to take one and, and, and hump it down the middle, you know, yeah. no way. So, so uh, Jack's just adamant, just smash it, just smash it. It's a, get, get your head down, idiot, as hard as you can. Just put your foot through it. And uh, anyway, you, you have to sort of uh, make your own mind up in those moments, in, uh, at those times, and I always place them, and... Thankfully, it went in. Andy Townsend is next to go for Ireland. Two more. It's Andy Townsend against Silvio Lung. Ah, yes. This is a remarkable penalty competition. 100% success rate of the first six kicks. One of the things that comes out in the documentary is that, well, there's a couple of things, of course. One is the, the kind of iconic footage of that is almost Jack being unable to watch when he stood. Yeah. And were you, were, were you aware of that at the time? No, no, because after he'd come over and told us all to wallop it down the middle, he then disappeared back over to the dugout where he had a fag and, <laughs> you know, and he's got his arm, he's sort of leaning on the dugout yeah. like that. But you're right, that was when he was kind of looking away almost um so and again jack being jack he's he would have been very very uptight in that moment um but i think the type of guy he is he wouldn't have wanted to have shown that he wouldn't have wanted mm -hmm. to transmit that at all so uh so he, he stood over there by the dugout and uh and and so the rest of us that were sort of taking the pens were all sat down in the middle and it's funny you actually sat as well with not only were we sat with our own lads the romanian boys were sat in there as well yeah which is kind of which is quite odd really you know i'm sort of looking at looking across at someone I think oh I hope he misses and I hope he misses and, I hope he misses. <laughs> and they're looking sort of looking back at me going oh I fancy he'll miss I fancy he might miss you know there's a bit of that all going on on the halfway line so uh, yeah very weird in the doc it says that Jack he basically went out and said you guys decide who's going to take them yeah do you remember that discussion 
Yeah, I do. I definitely remember that. And I definitely remember Dave. And of course, as, as, as you know now from the film, Dave had never taken a penalty before in his life. Surely there's a better option than a first, <laughs> fifth taker. Who's not taking them? It's well, so Stan had, Steve Staunton had gone off. Aldo had gone off, I think. So we're a couple maybe of, 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 of other options down. Mm. Um, I knew that Big Paul wouldn't want to take one. And so after that, we were starting to get a little bit thin on the ground. But it was basically Ray, myself and Kevin Sheedy that sort of said, you know, Sheedy's is going to go up first, then Ray, then myself, then Cass, and then Dave, you know, uh, which now the fifth penalty actually is a strange one because over the years now, everyone tries to work out, you know, what one's going to be the most important one. Yeah. They're, all in, they're all important. The fifth one, sometimes you don't get to five. If you have your best penalty taker on number five and you miss your first three, well, chances are you he ain't going to get to take one. So, so do you put your best one up in that position or do you put perhaps someone who don't quite fancy one in that position? I don't know. I don't know. But we decided to sort of front load it, if you like, with, yeah. with those of us that those of us that took them a little bit more on a regular basis, and uh, and then Cass, and then and actually, you know, when Dave stepped up. I never fancied him to miss for one second. You know, over the years of doing commentary, I've sat there in the stand, probably just like everyone at home. Yeah. Everyone at home. And I think there's actually, we should all have a button at home, really, when we're watching matches. Yeah. And, and, and as they're walking up to take a pen, we should go, yes or no, shouldn't we? Because <laughs> that walk from the halfway line to the penalty spot, everyone's going, oh, no, it's him. Oh, no, it's him. Oh, no. And I've done it so many times. I've gone, yeah. no, I don't fancy don't fancy him. Don't fancy this one to score. But you never had a worry with David O'Leary. But with Dave, I don't know why, I never thought he would miss. I always thought he'd score. Listen, he was an outstanding footballer, very, very accomplished footballer. So uh, why wouldn't I? But yeah, it was uh, amazing. Amazing yeah. time. You go, on to, you go on to play the hosts and it, you know, that's when you go out, you lose 1-0. Yes. But, but the footage yes. afterwards of you all gathered round, like having a sing-song yeah. and you're sat yeah. there in an Italy shirt, Andy. I wondered, I who know. did you swap shirts with? So I swapped with uh, Don Adoni, who was, oh, the, oh, nice. who was the guy. He took the shot that, that Packy Bonner made the save and sort of just lost his foot in a bit and Scalacci yeah. knocked, it, knocked it into the, the other corner. So, uh, so, yeah, I swapped with him and uh, I, think I, had a couple, I think he gave me a couple of shirts. Obviously, the clean one, that wasn't his dirty, sweaty, horrible <laughs> one that I was sitting, sitting with my wife with her and I haven't seen her for the last six weeks. You know what I mean? So, uh, so no, so I put the clean one on and... Um, Anyway, when we, when we uh, flew from, we put the bags on in Rome. When I got back to Dublin, all my shirts had been nicked. <gasps> all, of, all of them had gone. All of them had gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and they hadn't, listen, they wouldn't have been done. They weren't done at Dublin. They were, they were obviously done at the other end. Someone's had their hand in. And it wasn't just me. There was a few of the lads that had had, oh, no. had, had, shirt, oh, had shirts pinched. Yeah. And can you believe it? The one that didn't get nicked was... No disrespect to uh, to Egypt, a fine a fine nation. You know, but whoever the Egypt player was, I have still got your shirt, mate. So thank you, thank you very much for that. Yeah. What was that that night after the Italy game? That there's this footage yeah. of you all sat round. Krista Burr is there singing a reworded version of Hey Jude, and you're just all like up drinking and singing with Jack. What was that night like? That was lovely. I mean, it was... Uh, was it sad or was it... Well, do you know what? I think, again, at the end of it, when you realise that it's all finally sort of over and, you know, you're going home, you, so, so, you know, you get, when you get back to the hotel, you get told 
right, we're leaving at nine o'clock in the morning, you know, so you're getting your bags packed and you're throwing everything in or whatever. And then it's like, we know we're always going to go downstairs and, and go to the bar and have a few beers and go for it. But, but to start with, I think everyone was tired and everyone was disappointed, you know, so it's a little bit subdued when, a, you know, when some of the songs are starting, it was a bit, mm, it's a bit like that sort of thing, singing along. But then, you know, listen, once, uh, once you start getting a, a few beers on board and everyone starts to, everyone starts to loosen up and why, why there had to be a fountain, didn't there in this area? Do you know yeah. what I mean? That, that was just inviting a load of silly footballers to go leaping in there and leaping out of there, you know, after they've had a few drinks. So sure enough, that fountain was, uh, yeah, got some, uh, got some stick that night as well. But, uh, look, it was, uh, it was great. You know, it was great. Did you know that actually all that footage you saw, Craig Johnson was working for UNICEF at the 1990 World Cup. And Craig was walking around with a handheld and he was on our bus all the time. And so two years ago, when we started to put the film together, I said to Gabriel, because one of the things obviously that, 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 that we needed, there was a lot of footage that a lot of people, of course, have seen of Big Jack and over yeah, the years. Yeah. But we want, they wanted to have a lot of stuff that were previously unseen. So anyway, lo and behold, I mentioned this to Gabriel. I said, Craig was walking around with a camera and look, God knows what he's done with all that stuff. It's probably long gone. Well, sure enough, a couple of calls to, and they got hold of Craig and he had reels and reels and, wow. tape and, ta- oh, and wow. boxes of tapes in a garage that he ain't even gone near for 30 years. <laughs> wow. Well, for, for, for 28, 29 years yeah. at the time. Next thing, he stuck his head in there, started looking through them all and he fishes all that stuff out. You know, it's bizarre. That's amazing. It? One of the kind of iconic images of Italia 90 before we leave Italy is that you went and met the Pope. We did. What was that like as an experience? In, in your tracksuits? <laughs> well, in, our, in those lovely, shiny, horrible, sweaty, red-hot tracksuits, you know, that, uh, <laughs> so that, that we've been very kindly given. But no, look, we, um, all the team, I'm pretty sure all the team, uh, I can't think of any of them, weren't Catholic. So it was an important moment. We always had priests traveling with the team. So if ever we were away on a Sunday, we could always have mass at a hotel and whatever, whatever. And there was always uh, that presence, if you like, mm. uh, within the camp. So when we won the penalty shootout, the first thing that happened was there was contacts made to the Vatican. And so off we trot, we go to the Vatican, which was amazing. And then after the Pope has, uh, has gone through about 50, honestly, it must have been about 10 languages. I mean, Big Jack... Bless him. He actually joked a couple of times. He said, I'm, I was like, I nearly went, nearly nodded off on the front row a couple of times, you know, because the Pope starts in, in Latin and then goes on to, and he goes, he goes through his speech in about, must be literally 10 different languages. And each time a, langu- a different language is heard, you'll, you'll see a little pocket of people all of a sudden just roar, you know, where, where those people from yeah. that part of the world are there. It's very, very amazing, amazing sort of yeah. situation. And then after he finished, we were then ushered backstage at the Vatican, if you like, to, uh, to the Pope's private quarters, you know, so, uh, which was amazing. And we were all standing in this room and it wasn't the biggest room. It was about 25 us in there. And then, you know, certain people have, have that amazing presence when they walk into a room. And my goodness, when he walked in, you know, and you've got a load of lads like me all normally taking the mickey out of everything that happens everywhere we go. And then all of a sudden everyone just went zip, you know, everyone just, yeah. Uh, and it was it was spectacular for Charlie O'Leary, our kit man, for for Mick Byrne, very religious men. They were it, it was a culmination of a of their whole religious life. Yeah, it yeah. was it was just 
everything and, and, and more they could have ever wished for, you know. Yeah. Well, fast forward on four years, USA 94, the Irish side arrive, and it's meant to be an away tournament, essentially. But the footage yes. of those stadiums covered in Irish flags, what yeah. was it like to play in that? Brilliant. That was that was a, a, a fantastic, fantastic occasion. And when we, we were in New Jersey, so we were in a hotel 15, 20 minutes from the stadium, maybe half an hour from the stadium. When we were getting on the bus, I remember... Brendan O'Carroll, Mrs. Brown, you know, yeah. nowadays. Brendan was, because Brendan travelled around with, the whole, with us everywhere we went during that period. Oh, and, wow. and so, yeah, Brendan was always with us, you know. And uh, Brendan was a, has been a great stand-up comedian without absolutely cracking it at that point. And, yeah. of course, now, nowadays he's, uh, he's absolutely... He's done all right from South in the last he's few years. Done, but he's, been, he's great. And he's a great bloke and, he, you know, really is a top fella. And when we got on the bus, I remember him, Brendan saying something along the lines of, apparently there'll be more Italians in the stadium today because, look, huge Italian contingent in New York as well as a, as a huge Irish contingent. So, and, and we think they've gobbled up most of the tickets. They've got most of the tickets and it, there, might be, there might be more of them. You know? And as we're on the way into to the stadium, you know, you're sort of seeing these buses go past you, you know, and, and there's, like, there's Irish fans hanging out the windows everywhere on these buses that are going... And then there's the odd Italian one, you know, and I'm thinking, we're all going, well, maybe the Italians are coming in from the other side, you know what I mean? Maybe, maybe this is the way we're all... And then we start, suddenly started to dawn on us when we got to the stadium that uh, there genuinely wasn't quite so many Italians as people first thought. And then when we walked out onto the pitch, and Cass tells a good story, when we walked out onto the, onto the pitch for the warm-up, it was already full, and I swear you could barely see the blue shirts in there. Jack turned around to, to Cass... And said, Cass, you're the only Italian in here. You know, <laughs> like, and uh, it literally took our breath away. So wow. that was just for the warm-up. And then when we come out for the actual start of the game, it's, uh, it's incredible. And, and you know what? In these times at the moment, and I'm, I'm working in empty stadiums like everyone else every weekend, you, you really do forget that on those special days how much the crowd yeah. can, can elevate you and can lift you and can sort of carry you over the line I know it's all sort of cliched and, and people think it's a lot of old crap but it's not it's it's so true when on, on when I think back to certain occasions and that is most certainly one of them my goodness me the the feeling I got and I'll speak for the rest of the boys there we all got that day when we saw that stadium like that it gives you an extra 20 percent it really does Townsend right in there Houghton also making his presence felt there's his shot And Ray Houghton has made it 1-0. Wasn't there a mix-up with the kits that day? Oh, God almighty. So, as <laughs> usual, so nothing's ever straightforward for us. For us so, we, uh, so you're always in the stadiums, I think, about an hour and 40 before kickoff. And because it was so hot, Jack was paranoid about the heat. We had training sessions with these little bags of water that we used to have to throw them to each other as you're running along, you know. And, and like to try and bite into a bag of water. We weren't allowed to have bottles on the pitch. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, well, they wouldn't oh, right. have plastic bottles. So you had these little plastic bags. You're sort of breathing out your backside and you're trying to bite into a plastic bag and it's, it's all yeah. dribbled through, through your fingers before you've even had a chance to get any on board, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so he was paranoid about the heat. So stay in the dressing room. Stay in here. Don't go out there. Don't go out there. Stay here. Stay here. So we're in there. So we're sitting around playing cards or just laughing and joking, some relaxing, got a bit of music on or whatever. And then you start to, to, to start going through all your stretches and you're getting ready and go out for the, for the warm-up. 
come back in, pads on, tape on round your socks, everything's all ready to go. I get out in the tunnel and of course I'm at the end of the front of the tunnel and I'm standing alongside Berezi. And Berezi looks at me and sort of has a look at the kit. We're in white, green, white. They're in white, blue, white. <laughs> right? So Berezi looks at me and goes, pointing to the kit. And I looked down and I, I sort of looked at him and he went, just shook his head and wagged, wagged his finger at me. So I turned around and Pat Bonner's behind me and all the rest of that. I said, we got a right kit on here. Anyways, Jack was standing at the back of the queue, at the back of all the players. And it's very quickly gone down the line. And we got, I think we're in the wrong kit. So our little kit man, Charlie, was about four foot six. Honestly, he's in the film. And uh, great character. And all I could hear was Jack's voice. Charlie! He's screaming. Have we got the wrong beep kit on? He screamed it out, right? And uh, Charlie's going, no, no, no. Anyway, we did. We had the wrong kit on. So... (laughs) So we are sprinting back in the dressing room. You're having to rip, rip all the tape, all your strappings, all, everything's coming off when you're taking socks off and you you know, we've had to completely. Oh my gosh. And literally we were just about to walk out. So, oh. so they've, had to, they've had to hold the Italians in the tunnel and, and uh, we, we did the fastest turnaround uh, uh, kit change. I think that in, in the history of the game, uh, <laughs> we, were, we were, we were back out in the tunnel, you know, but, within about five minutes with this time the, the green, white, green. And, uh, but, but it can only happen to us that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that happened, we got asked to, we asked our listeners for questions and someone okay. wanted to know about you having an allergic reaction at yes. the USA, at USA 94. I, I did. So a lot I of the players struggle with the heat, but you struggle. Yes. I got, it, it was like a poison ivy sort of scenario for some reason. I don't know how I, I've, I've was obviously come into contact with something, but my knee literally, I, I, no pain at all, no pain whatsoever. Mm. So I knew I hadn't, I knew I hadn't tweaked something or damaged a ligament or anything like that without knowing it or a cartilage. Sometimes you can, but I, that wasn't the case. I knew I hadn't hurt myself, but I literally was sort of sitting there thinking that my knee feels a bit hot. And then, then woke up the next morning and it was like three times the size of the other one, you know, which isn't great a couple of days before. Uh, and what was that too? Mosquito spray? Someone said to me, it could be, it could be a plant you've come in contact with. I don't know what I was smoking at that particular <laughs> uh, I just must have brushed up against something or, or yeah, a reaction to, to something, but couldn't get it down for a day. So I never trained for a couple of days, I think, before the, the Mexico game. I think I had a couple of days sat sat with the physio just with ice on it, just various, all the different treatments he could give me to try and get the swelling down. The Mexico game was the one in the heat. It was 110 or whatever it was. How bad was that playing in that heat? And thankfully, they gave us a midday kickoff, which (laughs) (laughs) kind of of really helped, you know, because of the, uh, again, it's all for television, isn't it, at the end of the day. So it's all the TV time. So to make sure that, Everybody, you know, uh, was, was seeing it at the right time. We kicked off midday. It was scorching, scorching. And I think secretly, even Jack, I know, had great reservations about how we could possibly play the game that we had played and the way mm. that we wanted to play in those sort of conditions. You can't because uh, unless you're all doing that, if you're going to press like Liverpool now, when you see Liverpool and Man City do it as well. When they press and they all go and they all do it, you think, wow, that's really effective. If one of you doesn't, when the others are swarming after the ball, if one of you standing there 
picking his nose and forgets to go or mm. is too tired or whatever. The whole thing, the, the opposition just go bang. They knock it to that player who's free and all of a sudden it's a complete waste of time. And I think Jack actually felt, he'd said to me a couple of times going into that game, be, he never sort of admitted it. He said it would be interesting to see how we cope with this today. That's <laughs> <laughs> not what you want to hear from your manager, is it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 110 degree heat. This, is, this will be interesting. This will be, this, will be, this will be interesting. We were playing then, we were playing with an extra. So we had John Sheridan with me and Roy Keane in midfield. And we had Tommy Coyne playing up front. Um, so we didn't play 4-4-2 then. We, we had an extra man in midfield, I think, to try and combat that a little bit. But, uh, but it was very, very difficult. Ridiculously hot. You know, like when you, you know you go to those countries when you step off the plane and you just sort of, your first breath is like boiling hot air. Do yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? And your wife's going, oh, how lovely. You know, and, <laughs> and, and you're thinking, I can't breathe here. You know, and it was like, it was like that. It was that sort of, that sort of yeah. conditions where oh, you're wow. literally gasping for for anything, you know. So those plastic bags of water were, were flying around all over the place. And of course, you couldn't catch them. And, and it was like a nightmare. But it was very, very difficult that day. Ridiculously yeah. hot. I mean, it was hot as well. There's a lot of hot heads on the touchline as well. John Aldridge and Big Jack Funny, lost their right? composure a little bit. Uh, were you aware of that? that was, while it was no, while it was... no. But I love it. I mean, I, I, I've, I mean, John's such a great guy. Such a great character. Um, and it don't, doesn't surprise me at all because Ray had come off. Jack wants to make the change. Ray Outen's coming off. Aldo's going on because we're one down. Ray's off now. Ray's now sat on the sideline with his boots off, sat, on the, sat, on, sat in the dugout. And Aldo still hasn't gone on, so we're now playing with 10. To be fair, I think that might have been Charlie as well, our little kid, man. It's a nightmare. Charlie might, yeah. To, he has to, they have to fill a form out. And, and for some reason, you know, and hand it to a, to a guy who sat on the side of the pitch with a little table and he... Oh, yeah, number seven coming off, number nine going on. Yeah, okay, thumbs up. Well, for some reason, something got cocked up with that form and, it, and they wouldn't let Aldo go on. So, of course, the next thing, Jack's now up there and he's finger pointing and jabbing away, you know, and Aldo's effing and jeffing at everybody in sight. And we, whilst all that's going on, we're playing with 10, you know. So, uh, and he got fined, Jack. Uh-huh. Uh, I think he got fined, and this is true, 20,000 Swiss francs, which on the face of it to Jack probably sounded like a ridiculous amount of money. I think it was something like a couple of grand. Even so. Yeah. You know. and, it's worth and having. It's worth having. You'd rather have it. <laughs> Look, and Jack, Jack, to be fair, God rest him, he won't mind me saying that uh, he was quite careful, shall we say, with his money. Right? Right. So, uh, oh yeah. And uh, so, um, in fact, that tenor on a piece of string, I often wondered if he was the ultimate Amy, if he was going to nick my tenor. You know? <laughs> uh, but the... Um, but when, when after the game, and of course, we still had one more game to play. That was the middle game, uh, Mexico, and we mm. got beat. After the game, uh, went back and uh, I was walking past his room to get to my own room and his door was open. He was sat there and he had a, he had a little Guinness. He had a little Guinness barrel in his room and he poured, him, he poured himself a pint of Guinness. And he was sat there with a the Guinness and uh, he called me in. I went into his room and, uh, and I just said, Jack, listen, we'll still qualify. We'll beat Norway. We'll do, you know, whatever. We'll do what we do. And he went, oh, I'm not worried about that bloody 20,000 Swiss francs they've just clobbered me with. <laughs> you know, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, even, even then he, was, he had half an eye on what it might cost him. But, uh, and do you know what? It got out, right? It, that story got out. And all of a sudden there was a, there was a collection in Ireland for Jack and for... Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, you know, people... <laughs> People were putting a few quid in a little pot in the pubs. You know, oh man alive. Oh, just amazing. 
what's going on here that John Aldridge wants to go on and the officials won't let him on. You know as well. Yeah. Corey was already off the pitch when that happened, had already gone to the bench and they wouldn't let Aldridge on. And Jack Charlton is quite right to be indignant about that and the gentleman in the yellow hat really exists nowhere in the firmament of international football and has no right to interfere in such an officious way. Chris always ends with the same question. Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, the amazing documentary Finding Jack Charlton is in cinemas from the 6th of November and on DVD and digital from the 23rd of November. But Andy, we always end on one last question. Come on then. If you if you could go back in time to the 1st of January 1990, oh, oh do you know what? We'll go back to 1988. Okay. Uh, and do it all again, would you? No. No? Why? No. I've done it. It can't, it can't be better than what I had at that time. It, if I went back, it can't be a better experience than the one I had. So I'm happy with what we did, how we did it, and the way it all went, and, and I loved it. But would I want to do it again? No. Brilliant. Andy Townsend, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. Good fun. That was the amazing Andy Townsend. I absolutely loved that interview. It was brilliant. Yeah, and the documentary that he's executive producers be covered in there of Jack Char- finding Jack Charlton is unbelievable. It's so good. I've watched it twice. Genuinely is amazing. It's, it's fascinating. It's moving. It it did the impossible. It made me pleased that Ireland beat England in Euro eighty eight. <laughs> All is forgiven. It was. I haven't felt like that since watching eighty nine and wanting Arsenal to beat Liverpool to the league. If they ever make, if they ever make a film about the German team at Euro '96, I, and I start to support them, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. It's the biggest swing in terms of how my mind has changed since I found out that Paul McGrath did the best version of '74, '75. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible week for the Connors. Um, now, uh, if you want to uh, a longer version of that interview containing Andy talking about the Aston Villa drinks and food video, uh, then uh, that is on the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. Also. Out on Monday on the Patreon is chapter two of the full reading and discussion of Steve Barnes. Oh, sorry, Steve Bruce. That guy's very different. They're interchangeable. Steve Bruce's striker. Let's have a little taste of it. Hello and welcome to episode two of Steve Bruce's striker, word by word. Ivo Graham, still here? Yes, uh, and what a pleasure it is to be approaching chapter two. Chris Skull. Hello. Michael Marden. Hello. Now, Michael, last time you thought that it wouldn't last as long as it did. Yes, I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say I was surprised by that first chapter. There were some big words in there, a few clever literary devices. I really feel like Steve Bruce has front-loaded the complexity of this book. Yeah, I feel like we might already be taking a revisionist approach to this whole (laughs) trilogy. (laughs) Is this like when I listened to Be Here Now and thought, actually, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I really rate Be Here Now. Really rate it. I think that... There's no surprises there. (laughs) (laughs) I think much like Steve Bruce's Striker, it was written on a big expensive high that <laughs> <laughs> ultimately everyone involved has to come down from eventually <laughs> would you say that the cover of be here now or of steve bruce's striker is worse <laughs> <of the two? laughs> just 
just as a visual collage, which one makes less sense? It's very, it's very hard to say. I'd say if you asked me without seeing either which had a car on the front, I'd have given you the wrong answer. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we're drawing the wrong analogy because strike is definitely maybe. It's really, it's sharp. It hits hard. I think it's fair to say that the work of Steve Roos and Noel Gallagher is perfectly analogous. In the, uh, in the striker, for me, is the defining text. It's sharp. It's, you know, yeah. you just bashed it out. Yeah. There's not, and then the second one, Sweeper, is brilliant. But it's it's a bit more over the top. Yeah, he had forever to write his first album, yeah, didn't exactly. he? And then suddenly, is and then Defender is just a complete fucking mess. Yeah. <laughs> but say what you like about Oasis, they really put Mulcaster on the map. <laughs> To continue the analogy, would Steve Bruce's autobiography be that collection of B-sides albums? Well, the master plan. The master plan. (laughs) Some say he should have held back, uh, Steve Bruce should have held back his autobiography and used some of it in his third uh, (laughs) novel. (laughs) He just thought he could keep writing these hits. (laughs) He didn't know. He didn't know. Um, Sorry if there's any people that aren't Oasis fans, because that's going to be such a boring three minutes. Um... (laughs) We should do... It's unlikely. I'm also gutted that I can't think of a slightly more effete London-centric football manager who was also writing <laughs> clumsy detecting noise in the mid-90s <laughs> with whom he'd have had a tussle at the top of the publishing charts. Um, so, uh, where do we stand at the end of chapter one? So just to recap, he finds Duffy on the floor. Steve Barnes is holding the knife. His assistant, Carberry, comes in and catches Steve Barnes with the knife, and we recap. That's basically the first chapter. I yeah. um, I like hearing you recap it, Josh. I think it's useful for us just to sort of reset up ourselves. I'd say for the listeners, if you're on episode two of the Patreon Steve Barnes word by word, having already listened to the full episodes, if you're still needing briefs on what's going on at this stage at the end of every episode, <laughs> how many micro digests can we give you? <laughs> okay, uh, Ivo, you're reading chapter two. Chapter two. All hell seemed to break loose. One minute, I'm in the locker room with the dead boy. And <laughs> just, say, just say the body. Uh, and Carberry sneering. And the next thing, I'm in my office. Not at my desk, but on the settee, dazed. The dead boy, can we can we chip into that a bit? Ooh, it feels a bit inhumane, doesn't also, it? I don't know. It feels, because anyone who's across Tim Key's poetry a lot, mm. he refers to, to his, his penis as his boy. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I'd say that's quite a specific thing to be thinking of at this moment in time. <laughs> um, but also, it's too, it's too vivid, I think. Well, it's certainly too vivid if you're thinking of Tim Key's flaccid penis, <laughs> the dead boy. <laughs> um, but yeah, exactly. No, no journalist would would ever write the dead boy. It, it's the body, or it's you know, yeah, um, the cadaver. Well, can we also been... quickly pick up on them? Um, I'm in the locker room. Another one of those sort of strange. American Amer- Amer- is an Americanism. You'd say the changing room. room. I'm in the changing rooms with yeah. the, yes, the Tim Key's dead penis. It's a different uh, version of locker room talk, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Who killed that boy? <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's the Tim Key meaning, of course, in which case it's, it's proper locker room talk. Uh, outside the door, there was the hubbub of voices. By this time, 
everybody must have known. And no doubt the rumour mill was active. Terrible writing. (laughs) Julie was sitting next to me, holding out a glass of water. Drink this, she said. You look like a ghost. I drank deeply. Thanks, Julie. I needed that. Right then, Carberry entered. He didn't knock. Is this the first appearance of Julie? Yeah, I think it is. Right then, Carberry entered. He didn't knock. I phoned the fuzz, he said. <laughs> what? <laughs> I can't believe Steve Bruce knows that phrase. <laughs> fuzz, I the phoned devil. the fuzz. Carberry entered without knocking. The pigs will be here before long, I should imagine. <laughs> <laughs> the rosas are on their way. If you want more of that, it is on patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. Up next, we have legendary BBC radio commentator Mike Ingham. He'll be joining us next week. It'll be early release on Saturday for Patreon listeners, Monday for everyone else. Thank you very much for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Robbie Slater, see you later. Go, Led! Hit Led! Hit Led over the top! This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.